Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Very quickly, two things you want to notice here. Uh, Moses, it, it's interesting, church leaders are always still trying to figure out what God is doing on some level. One of the most difficult things about being a pastor is all of the people who sit there and look at you think you know everything about what's going to happen next, right? For some reason, you're supposed to have mastered this business of following God to a degree that you don't have any questions but only answers. And, and really, if you remember what happens here is the Bible says God calls to Moses out of a mountain. Well, see, the last time God called to Moses, he was, he was in a burning bush, but what you're going to see here is that in Exodus, when Moses brings the people back to the God that he remembers, it was just a bush, but now the whole mountain's on fire. Look, God is always outpacing us. He's always outpacing us. And another thing I don't have time to develop, and I wish I did, verse 4, you'll notice here, the Bible says that God bore us on eagle's wings, or bore Israel, and brought them to himself. And that's the point. Whenever God saves you, He's not just trying to bring you out of bondage, but bring you to Himself. Right? So the relationship that we enjoy with God is always foremost in His mind. Rescue or redemption is just the beginning of a covenant relationship with God. And so God actually continues and look at verse 5. Now therefore, God says, therefore, because I've rescued you in this way and now we are in a relationship, it's a covenant, he'll say, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke. This is why God gathers his people. Everybody look at me. Big gathering this morning. This is why God gathers his people, first and foremost, to speak to them. This is why we spend so much time reading the Bible together and listening to God as he speaks. God gathers his people, and, and it's, not, it's not primarily for a magic show. He's going to speak words they can understand that are meant to shape their lives. And here's what he says in chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Lord, that's what we want now. We want you to speak. Later, the, the people of Israel would be so terrified, they would say, Moses, you, you go speak to God. You, you go up for us. Don't let us have to listen to him. We'll die. I, I pray something different right now that we would understand in the context of grace that we stand, uh, that we, we can listen to you for ourselves as well, that we all have equal access into your presence because of Christ, those of us who have come through him. Speak now, Lord, and help it to change our lives as you desire. These are God's words that we just read. They will never lose their power to save those who are separated from him because of sin. They will never lose their relevance or their power to instruct God's people concerning how they should live in this world. And if you believe that, say amen. Now, I don't have many hobbies. I'm not a hobby kind of a guy. My wife will tell you I'm as plain Joe as they get. But I do enjoy watching sports on TV. And if you've ever watched a game of sports, even, even live, you'll realize that it's one thing to watch an athlete do something spectacular, to get a sense that he is fast or strong or powerful, and yet it's another thing altogether, isn't it, to meet that athlete and to get to know him. Israel has just, just watched God do some spectacular things. They know by this time that he's strong. They know he's powerful. But they've never met him. Do you understand the difference? And now, all of that is about to change for them. And maybe that's all about to change for you this morning. It can happen like that when the Lord's Spirit is present. Maybe today is the day that you move from being somebody who just knows some things about God to somebody who has actually met him in a way that changes everything about your life. Again, that's what happened for me 16 years ago, and if that's never happened for you, that's my prayer this morning. That's our prayer for you. Let's, let's see what else God wants to do. I want to do some very simple things. My goal, I would say, is simple. This morning, I just want to walk us through various portions of Exodus chapters 19 through 25. And as I do, I just want to highlight some things that we can see there that are true, still true today, and then with each one of those, I want to kind of draw out at least one implication of that truth for our lives today. So let's, let's start here actually in chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. The first truth that I want to highlight is this. For thousands of years, for thousands of years, God's purpose for his covenant people has never changed. Look at chapter 19, verse 5 and 6 with me again. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth, all of it, is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now here's why I say that God's purpose for his people or his intended role for his people in the earth as they live amongst others has never changed over thousands of years. Because look at the way that God describes his new covenant community, the church, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Don't lose your place in Exodus, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, here's what God says through Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There's your kingdom of priests. A holy nation. This should sound familiar. A people for his own possession. 
that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thousands of years, no change in how God views the role of his people in the world. Now, what's the implication of that for us? Well, very simply, the first implication of that is that you and I will never have to concern ourselves with new or trendy ideas about what it means to be the church in our culture today. I'm going to say that again. You and I will never have to concern ourselves with new or trendy ideas about what it means to be the church in our culture today. What it means to be culturally relevant. We'll never have to beat ourselves in the brain to figure that out. Now, here's what I mean. Trendy ideas will come and go like fashions every 30 years or so. I'm not a very fashionable guy. Some of you have picked up on this. Don't laugh too loudly. I'm not a very trendy guy. But what I've done is I've tried to get clothes. Whenever I do get clothes, I try to get clothes that are plain, that never seem to go out of style. I'm like that with spiritual things. Don't laugh too loudly. Maybe they are out of style. But that's not my point here. Back in the spirit. The point here is trends will come and go. And if you listen to some people, you'll think that you have to always figure out every nook and cranny about what this group of people in the south side of Richmond believe and think if you're going to be effective in reaching them with the gospel. But don't forget the most important thing. If they are lost, separated from God because of sin, they need Christ. And if you're introducing them to the God that was powerful enough to subdue Pharaoh and bring Israel out of Egypt, then you have within your message all the power that is needed for for them to be saved. And I know this is not conventional thinking, but I I don't have to know everything about that person. I know the most important thing already, and I have time to get to know a little bit more so that I can know where's the open door. Where does this person perhaps most feel their need for the gospel? And then I can just say thank you, Lord, and begin to walk through that with conversation. Now, these trendy ideas, you've got to always be, be a little careful. What we need is to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. I'll come to that holy nation part in a minute. But first, let's look at this. What does it mean for us today to live as a kingdom of priests? On the most basic level, being a kingdom of priests simply means that we appear before God on behalf of other people. Is it okay if I just try to simplify this for you? That's what priests did. They appeared before God on behalf of other people. You and I do that today when we pray for other people. Priests would take sacrifices and they would would take these sacrifices from people, arrange them properly on the altar to make sure that God would accept it. And what they were doing was they were bringing people near to God through the offering of a right sacrifice. Now, you and I aren't making sacrifices other than sacrifices of praise today praying for people, but what we, what we can do is we can bring people near to God by pointing them to the sacrifice that he has offered on their behalf. 
And that's exactly what we do through our message about Jesus who was sacrificed for sinners like us and brought back to life so that we can be forgiven and made one with God. So when you and I pray for other people and when you and I present the gospel of Jesus to them, we are living as a kingdom of priests. And watch this. It's not so much what we think we are to other people. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Do you see that? It's always first and foremost about who we are in relation to God. That's where we begin to find our true effectiveness in helping others to come to know him. Did you really catch that? Because that is so important. A lot of times we spend so much time remaking or reinventing ourselves, but we don't realize that God has asked us to be a kingdom of priests to him. That's so important. That's why some have said that public religion is purified when private religion is purified. Anyway, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. Let me ask you a very quick question. Do you... Do you tend to believe that you need to be an expert on current cultural trends in order to be effective for God today? Or do you realize that the key to cultural relevance is simply majoring on things that are always true? The truth number one, God has called us to be a kingdom of priests and his role for us has not changed in thousands of years. So trends will come and go and you can let them go without worrying that you've missed the thing that's going to make you effective. Truth number two. Truth number two, God's people are called to be a holy nation. Now that word holy there in verse six, you can see that there again. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That word holy, as many of you know, means set apart. Now, after saying this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God actually goes on in chapters 20 through 23 to give Israel some very specific and detailed instructions about how they are to conduct themselves amongst other people in this world. Just like God gives you and me very specific instructions today about how we are to live in his world. And what you'll notice about the instructions he gives to Israel in chapters 20 through 23, we don't have time to go through it this morning, but what he does is he tells them some things that will help to distinguish them from everybody else around them. In the same way that he made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians when he brought the plagues, now God says, I'm bringing you my word, and by my word, if you obey what I'm saying, I'm going to make a distinction again between my people and the rest of the world. What's the implication of this for us? The fact that God wants us to be a holy nation, set apart, easily distinguished from the rest of the world. Well, it means when it comes to actually being effective in our efforts to bring others to Christ or to attract them to God, our effectiveness won't be based so much on the extent to which we are like everybody else. Our effectiveness won't be so much based on the extent to which we are liked by everybody else. Our effectiveness will be based more on the extent to which we are distinct 
and noticeably different from everybody else around us in beliefs, values, and behavior. Now that's very different from much of what you may hear nowadays. We're always trying to reinvent ourselves again and and get it just right and, and blend in. But if you notice, this is not really the way that God does things with Israel when he brings them out of Egypt. He says, no, you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be different from the world around you. And that's how I'm going to make myself known through you. That's how I'm going to make myself attractive and draw others to myself. Now, I'll tell you what this does not mean. Because you're probably, Ryan, you want to know what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we have to go out of our way to make ourselves weird or obnoxious. And by your laugh, I can tell that you have some very vivid pictures in mind of what that means to you. I've got my own examples. But we don't have to go out of our way to dress weird. Or Now, now being a follower of Christ may and should impact the way that you dress. And I'll leave it at that because I'm not here to give you more rules than you've already come in with. But it doesn't mean that we have to go out of our way to be weird or obnoxious. We don't have to pick it at the, at the nearest uh, whatever store you think is ruining the world. We don't have to hold picket signs out there. And I'm not, look, I'm not looking down on those who do hold picket signs. Because there, there might be a lot of truth on that picket sign. I've generally seen that people with those signs don't, in my opinion, don't seem to display God's full heart toward those who are still captured by sin. But I'm not going to completely knock what's going on if, if you're carrying a sign somewhere. But my point is to say we don't have to go out of our way to be weird or obnoxious. We just have to be different. And, and the closer we stay to God every single day in our hearts, we're going to be different. I'll give you one example. Look at the way that most people in our country today are starting to think about marriage. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and you, you actually believe that the words of the Bible are God's very own words, you will not be able to keep yourself from being noticeably different concerning what you believe about marriage and how you actually enter and practice your life as a married person. You, you won't be able to keep yourself from being distinct. Right? And, and what I'm saying is that's not something that you and I have to hide from anybody. We can actually put that up up front. That's who we are. That's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. We believe that God is the one who gave us marriage. We believe that God said this. It's not our own idea. And we can hold those convictions without beating other people up with it if they hold another view. But please don't hide it. Please don't hide who you really are. I mean, do you really think you're helping people by doing that? Is that God's plan to put you in the world and leave you amongst people who are lost and without him and then just have you hide all of the things that make you easily distinguished as God's people? Are we supposed to be so afraid that we're going to scare somebody else off with who we are as Christians that we just always hide it? Worse yet, are we going to try to say that we're just being wise? When, when, 
when realistically what might be going on at that point is that we're being cowardly because we're afraid of how people will respond. It's God's plan to distinguish us from those around them in terms of our beliefs, our behaviors, and our values. And we can believe these things. We can remain upfront about what we believe and why. And yet at the same time, even if others misunderstand us, even if others heap abuse on us for, it, for, for, for doing that, we can still love people. We can still look at them and say, look, please, why, why, are you, why are you so hostile toward me because this is what I believe? Maybe we'll help someone else realize that they're not quite as tolerant as they once believed. And then we can finally have a discussion with certain people on level ground. Say, you, you know, there's some things that you think are terrible. There's some things that I think are terrible. Why do you believe that this is so terrible? I'll show you why I believe what I believe. But show me why you think the Christian who believes that marriage should be a particular way is ruining the world. God's called us to be a holy nation. We will be different if we are following the word of the Lord. Third thing I want to mention, the third truth, is if you look in chapter 20 of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you caught this, but the Ten Commandments actually come to us in the context of grace. Let's look at chapter 20 real quick and I'll show you what I mean. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. God spoke all these words to Israel, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, usually, if you ask somebody, what is the first of the Ten Commandments, they might give you this. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But the unabridged version of the Ten Commandments says what? There's that little piece that we leave out, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am the Lord your God. The Ten Commandments begins with a statement about who God is to us, our relationship with Him. I am your God. You are my people is the implication. And then from the relationship, he speaks about that rescue again, or redemption, and he says, I am your God, there's our relationship, I have rescued you, I've done something for you, I've loved you in a particular way, now here are my gracious rules for living life in a safe way that will lead to your greatest joy. Some of us come from backgrounds where rules were just barked at us constantly. We were, we were made to feel, <coughs> pardon me there, we were made to feel as though we always had to perform and get everything right if God was going to love us or accept us. And one of the things that people used to make us feel that way was the Ten Commandments. We would, we would have the, the Ten Commandments thrown in our face. Have you kept this? Have you done that? Have you kept this? No, I've fallen short. Man, I feel bad. Have you done this? Have you done that? And that's not where the Ten Commandments begin. That's not where God's heart in giving us the Ten Commandments begins. 
It begins with a reminder of what he has done to powerfully rescue people from bondage. And in that same tenor of grace, he gives us rules to live by. Like like when I give my kids rules and I say, don't run out into the street or the parking lot. Oh, daddy, you're so restrictive. Oh, just legalism, legalism, rules. I don't want my kids to die. I love my kids. And so when I give them a prohibition, it's for their protection. I'm telling them, I love you. Listen to me. Trust me. There are cars going by that will hit you. You'll, you'll die. You'll be seriously hurt. And God does the same thing. It, it, he doesn't want to just, well, I've only got nine. Anybody got another one that I can give them? Oh, let me throw in something about adultery. Yeah, that's a good one. No, he doesn't want you to destroy your life and your family. He wants you to be happy. He wants your joy. And he understands that only one thing can bring that about. Your faithfulness to your spouse. That's what this is about. A loving God who, in the context of grace, gives us gracious rules by which to live. Now, what's the implication of that for us? I promised you an implication. You and I will never have to trick ourselves again into thinking that God's commands and a sincere attempt to follow and obey God's commands is opposed to a life of grace. Stick with me. Some of us think that if we hear a command or an imperative from God, that we have to throw up our defenses and resist it because it's legalism. It's a command. Commands are meant to be obeyed, not ignored, not feared when they come from a good God. Obeyed with trust in the one who gave it to us. God's commands, God's law, it's never opposed to God's grace. In fact, you can see this truth from another angle. Right here in Exodus, you can see this truth from another angle. Because if you turn quickly to chapter 24, as a matter of fact, and we're beginning to close, and as we say, Robert Greene, there's... There's a big difference between closing and beginning to close. So we're just, we're just beginning to close, okay? Don't get too excited. But in Exodus chapter 24, again, I'm going to read verses 12, 15, and 18. But listen carefully to what happens here. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So there are your Ten Commandments. And so Moses is about to come up onto the mountain to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments from God and bring them back to the people. But here's the thing. Again, the the law of God is given to us in the context of grace. And you can see that here because Moses is about to go up on this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Look at verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Verse 18 
Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And one of the reasons he was up there so long was because God was going to give him something in addition to the Ten Commandments. Do you know what it was? All right, look at chapter 25. After God forms a covenant community, his next step is to dwell among them by his presence. And we'll get into that more next week. I won't do too much of that. But what happens here is God begins to give Moses the instructions to build what we call the tabernacle where, or the tent of meeting where he will dwell amongst his people in their midst. And you see that over here in chapter 25, starting in verse 10. The first piece of this tabernacle is something called the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, there you go. You know what that looks like, right? Do we, do we have that picture? This is not as good as the one on, on the movie, but I just got another one. That Yeah, we'll just, all right, those are two angels on the top. We'll get to that in a minute, but keep that in mind. All right, let's get back to chapter 25, Exodus 25, verse 10. That, that box you just saw, it's about to be described here in, in the Scripture. Now they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now that's the cover of this ark of atonement, the one that had the two angels on it. Make a mercy seat out of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make... Two cherubim of gold, those are those angels there, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And here's all that says. You've got these two angels on top of this cover. You've got God giving Moses instructions on how to make a tabernacle with a mercy seat. And that, that Ark of the Covenant and the cover of it in particular is where the priests would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice that would atone for Israel's sins in any given calendar year. And those two angels looking down would be looking for this blood. And when the right blood, the blood of the sacrifice God had appointed, had hit that mercy seat, it was well for the people of Israel that year, and they would be forgiven, and God would continue with them. His presence would be among them, because the blood of his appointed sacrifice was there on the mercy seat, as attested and witnessed by those two angels on the cover. So as God gives Moses the Ten Commandments... He gives them the instructions to build this tabernacle so that they could carry out this whole system of sacrifices where God would graciously pardon them for every transgression against his law. God never intended for us to be made right with him on the basis of how well we keep all those rules. From the very beginning, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And at the same time, he gives them, or he gives Moses rather, the means by which the Israelites will atone for their sins when they break those Ten Commandments. 
In the same breath, God gives Moses the means by which they are forgiven. He never intended for us to be made right with him on the basis of how well we perform. And of course, the implication of that is that you and I don't have to do that today. We don't have to convince ourselves that God only accepts us on the basis of how well we perform. He's never done that, and he's not changing. He's not doing that today. One person said he's not so much keeping score, he's keeping promises. And he promises to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The next time the believer sins, God wants to forgive and to cleanse. Will you confess? Will you trust him enough to come to him and confess? That's what we have to do. You want a performance? Do that. Trust God and confess your sin. And watch what he does. He forgives and he cleanses. All right? So that's what we're looking at here. You can see that truth there that God, again, gives us the law or the Ten Commandments in the context of grace. And there's something as we close, we're really beginning to close now, something I want to point out to you about this Ark of the Covenant again. Let, let me see that picture with the two angels. When they made this Ark of the Covenant, right there on the top, you see those angels looking down on the cover, one on one end, one on the other, looking for this blood that would be sprinkled on it. Now that blood of lambs never fully satisfied God, but it would temporarily at least pacify him, and it was what he prescribed. And so he would contend and stay with the people of Israel as long as that correct sacrifice was offered each year. But I want you to turn really quick to John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20, I want to show you something really quick. On the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, and this is probably the most important thing about what you and I are looking at this morning in the book of Exodus and what it means to be God's covenant community. On the day that Jesus rose from the dead, you want to talk about a display of power that brings somebody out of something. God brought Jesus out of death and out of a tomb. And in verse 1 it says there, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, that's John, by the way, the one who's writing this. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, interesting, all she saw was an empty tomb. This is how she interpreted what she could not see. Somebody had to have robbed the grave. You'll see in a moment, John sees the exact same thing and concludes something different. Jesus was raised. It's not so much the evidence people are considering. It's the heart through which they are interpreting that evidence. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Now everybody watch this. I love this part. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just want to write that in there. The other disciple got there first, <laughs> John. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, 
and probably had a different version of the race, but Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb like he got there first. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. He saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now watch what happens. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And do you know what she saw? She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said, woman, why are you weeping? <laughs> don't, don't you know what's just happened? Why are you weeping? For thousands of years, we've seen the blood of animals sprinkled on this mercy seat. We two angels, could it be that these two angels are the ones depicted on that Ark of the Covenant? Could it be that they finally saw the blood that wouldn't just pacify God for this year, but satisfy him forever on your behalf? Could it be that they looked down and finally said, that's what we've been waiting to see? That's what this was all about. That's why God brought Israel out of Egypt. That's why God had Moses build that tabernacle. That's why God saved you. So that you would know blood has hit the true mercy seat that satisfies God forever on your behalf. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the blood of the very Son of God has been witnessed, not just by these angels, but by God himself. Everything we are reading up to this point in our series, the drama of redemption, is pointing us to Jesus Christ. God has worked out the details of history thousands of years in advance. He's so in control of what's happening today that he is able to work these things out thousands of years in advance and just give Mary a glimpse. You remember that Ark of the Covenant, Mary? They can't find it. Indiana Jones has it somewhere, but don't worry about that. Those two angels, you just saw them. Today, God is giving us a glimpse of what all of history and all of your life is about. It's about Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for us so that our sins might be forgiven. It's about God calling us to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests distinct from those around us in our beliefs, in our values, in our behaviors, so that he might show himself strong, show himself wise, make himself known, and make himself attractive to those who don't know him yet. It's not about figuring out trends and, and what the newest ideas are that have come down through the church in the last 20 years. It's about falling in love with things that are 4,000 plus years old. 
It's about governing our lives by ideas and promises that are thousands of years old. It's about embracing an identity that God spoke to other people thousands of years ago and realizing that he's brought us into that relationship. Right now, right here, today, that's who we are. We're a part of a people in Richmond, Virginia in 2012. We're not, we're not the end-all be-all. We're just one part of what God is doing through his church in Richmond. But that's who we are. And the blood that is witnessed here on this Ark of the Covenant is the blood that redeems and rescues us. And what I'm saying to you this morning is if you've never come to Jesus Christ in faith, there is a tidal wave of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption coming your way. Do you see it? You ever tried to catch a wave? You ever looked over your shoulder and said, here's one? Is it going to get all the way to me? This one can get all the way to you. Start kicking while I close. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you're teaching us here in the scriptures and more importantly, for what you're doing through Jesus to bring us to yourself. Is there anyone here, Lord, this morning who has not been brought to you through saving faith in Jesus Christ? If so, then right now, I I ask that you would open their hearts to receive you. Help them to see that there is nothing they've done that's so bad that you will not accept them right now. The guy that you gave these Ten Commandments to was a murderer. He was a felon. You used a felon to be your official voice and representative to the people and the deliverer at that time to bring them out. Later you would bring a perfect representative. But because you sent one who is perfect, none of us needs to be perfect today. I just pray that you would help us to believe that you are right now accepting imperfect people like us. Even those of us who are former felons. And Lord, you are bringing us into a relationship with yourself through Jesus Christ. We ask that in your name. Amen.